Tonight, I want to kind of jump right in to back into the series that we're doing. We're doing a series called Multiply, where we're looking at the book of Acts and how God multiplied and grew his church, the early church, and how his spirit was so actively involved in our lives. And the church grew, 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 multiplied, multiplied. So flip open your Bibles, if you would, to Acts chapter 3, the book of Acts chapter 3. This is the fifth book in the New Testament. If you don't have a Bible, by the way, we have a whole table full of them in the back there. If you raise your hand, Steve will make sure that you get a Bible. And the church Bible is page 884. And as you're flipping there, I want to give you a little bit of context as to what's happening. So the end of chapter 2, we spent a lot of time last week talking about the end of chapter 2. And at the end of chapter 2 and the end of chapter 4, we get these two little snapshots, these two little glimpses of what the early church looked like. I encourage you, if you missed last week, check that out. You can listen to it online. But what we said was, as we looked at the early church who they were, who they weren't, what they did, the things that they didn't do. We said some things. We said they're God-focused. They were incredibly united. Their generosity was absolutely off the charts. And they were constantly inviting people to experience the power of the gospel in their lives. That's the end of chapter 2. And then you get to the beginning of chapter 3. And the beginning of chapter 3 is this fascinating story. It's this incredible story. This incredible history, right, of two guys, two of Jesus' apostles, Peter and John, who through the power of the Holy Spirit do something miraculous, totally miraculous, undisputably miraculous. You have a guy who was crippled since birth, right? Legs don't work, which especially back then would have been a terrible thing. People literally carrying him around places. These two men, in the name of Jesus, heal this guy. So this guy comes up to them and he asks them for money. And Peter and John say, hey, listen, we don't have any money. They say, they say, silver and gold I do not have, but what I have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. And this guy, who has never been able to walk, legs don't work, all of a sudden it says in the text, it says, they help him to his feet. And it says, as they do that, he jumps up and starts jumping around. I better be careful. Starts jumping around, praising God, right? Absolutely amazing. And so this is happening in the temple, in the temple court. So there's people all around. So that people see this. They know this guy. He's there every day. They know this guy, and they see this, and it says that they are absolutely amazed. And so Peter recognizes the moment, and he seizes this opportunity. God has done something undisputably miraculous. Peter recognizes this. He sees is the opportunity, and this is what he says. Acts chapter 3, starting in verse 12. I want to read this together, kind of this chunk here. Starting in verse 12. Fellow Israelites, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. You handed him over to be killed, and you disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. You disowned the Holy and Righteous One and asked that a murderer be released to you instead. That's Barabbas. You can read about that in the Gospel. Gospels. Verse 15. You killed the author of life. Peter's words are really strong here, right? You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. By faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. 
It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that's completely, completely healed him, as you can all see. Now, fellow Israelites, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders, but this is how God fulfilled what he foretold through all the prophets, saying that his Messiah would suffer. Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord, and then he may send his Messiah, send the Messiah who's been appointed for you, even Jesus. So Peter, like God does something amazing, right? God does something absolutely miraculous. The people are like, oh my gosh, I've known that guy for years and he's never been able to walk. All of a sudden, he could walk, right? Like, what is going on? Peter sees that. He recognizes the opportunity and boldly, with courage, he explains to them the gospel and he challenges them. He says, repent and turn to God so that your sins would be wiped out. And so all this is happening in a very public place, right? And so you have the priest, the captain of the guard, the Sadducees, which those are the religious leaders. The religious, the Jewish religious leaders, they get really ticked off. They see this. They hear this. They get really ticked off at Peter and John for saying that Jesus had risen from the dead. And so you know what they do? They arrest him. And they throw them into jail. So they just healed this guy who's not been able to walk ever. They heal him, and what they get in response is arrested and thrown in jail overnight. But this is so cool, because what God did in healing this guy, and what Peter did in explaining that it's Jesus, it's through the name of Jesus, you know what happens? Hundreds of people came to trust in Jesus. So at the end of chapter 2, we saw when Peter gave his first speech, we looked at this a couple weeks ago, 3,000 people came to know Christ. This time, now there's 5,000. The church is up to 5,000 people. Hundreds of people see this miracle, and they come to follow Jesus. So then we get to chapter 4, and it says that the next day, the very important high priest, very important, right? His name was Annas, was there with his family and a few other people, and they begin to question these guys. They take them out of jail. They begin to question. Peter and John. And what do Peter and John do when they are questioned by the very important high priest Annas? They cave in and, and look to save their butts? No, not at all. In fact, they say much the same thing to these guys as they did to all of the people. These guys, the high priest would have been, like to put it in context today, the high priest for them would have been like the Pope to Catholicism, right? The most important guy. And so when he questions him, what do they say? Well, they say very much the same thing. This guy is healed in Jesus' name. The guy that you killed, God raised from the dead. And now, Peter says, he says, salvation is found in no one else. There's no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. That is like, that is like a line in the sand, Right? That's a dividing line if there ever was one. It's through no one else that salvation comes. It was a dividing line back then. And guys, it's a dividing line for us today too. Now, this is what Christianity claims. Christianity doesn't claim to be one of many religions, one of many ways to salvation, to eternal life. Christianity claims to be the only way. Salvation is found in no one else, no other name other than Jesus so Peter and John, they're like, well, listen, whether you guys like, so talking to the high priest, right? Whether you guys like it or not, whether you recognize it or not, it's all about Jesus. Salvation is found nowhere else. And so these religious leaders, they don't know what to do. 
And all they have to do, they see these ordinary, unschooled, like these are, these are normal guys, average guys, unschooled, unpolished guys showing this incredible courage and this incredible boldness. And oh yeah, they just healed a guy who was crippled all of his life, right? They don't know what to do. And so they start talking, they, they send them out, they start talking among themselves, they bring them back in, and here's what they say. Stop it. Don't teach about Jesus anymore. In fact, don't talk about him anymore. So what do you think Peter and John do? Okay. I won't talk about Jesus anymore. No. You know what they say? They say, listen, which is right in God's eyes? You judge for yourself. Which is right in God's eyes as to, to obey you or to obey him? They say, as for us, we cannot help but speak about what we've seen and what we've heard. And so then they can't figure out what to do with them. And so they, how they're going to punish them. So they threaten them a little bit more. And then they let them go. And what do they do next? Well, this is where I want to spend the rest of our time. If you got your Bibles, flip them one page over. I think you're in chapter 3. Flip them one page over to chapter 4, verse 23. I want you to see this. Acts 4.23. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people. This is, when it says their own people, this is the church. This isn't like their family or the other Jews. This is the church. So Peter and John went back to the church, and they reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard this, they ra- the church, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. That word together is a really interesting word. It's, it's in, the, in the original language, it's actually a smushing together. It's an uncommon word. It's a smushing together of two other words that mean to rush along in unison. And one of the guys, one of the commentators that I read um, talking about this, he said it, it almost has musical undertones to it. He said our prayers together are like a harmony of beautiful instruments to God with the Holy Spirit as the concert master. I love that. You think about that? Like, how be- what a beautiful image of what our prayers are like to God. This beautiful harmony of beautiful instruments with the Holy Spirit as our concert master. So it says, they raise their voices together in prayer to God. And this is what they say. Middle of verse 24. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. And then, and then he quotes. He quotes this Old Testament passage. If you go back to the book of Psalms, don't flip there. But if you go back to the book of Psalms, the second Psalm, chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, this is what it says. This is a prophecy that they are now applying to Jesus. Okay, this is what it says. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. So they look at that and they say, that is a prophecy, that's a foreshadowing of what happened to Jesus as the leaders, the rulers rose up and they worked against the anointed one. Look at verse 27. Indeed, Herod, who was a king, Pontius Pilate, who was a ruler, met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. The prophecy was fulfilled. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. So what happened to Jesus, think about this guys, what happened to Jesus was actually God's plan. Even though they freely chose it, and these people were responsible for their choices, they freely chose and yet God was in control. Right? This is all part of God's plan, what happened to Jesus. Verse 29. Now, Lord, consider their threats 
and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, which, which is a sign that God heard their prayer and a sign that God approved of their prayer. And it says, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the word of God boldly. So God answered their prayers by allowing them to speak his word boldly. You get to the next chapter, the end of chapter 5, it's fascinating. That after they, some of the apostles spoke God's word boldly, so they prayed for that. In the end of chapter 5, actually, when they did that, it says that they were beaten and flogged, right? You know what flogged is? It's like getting beaten with a big reed a bunch of times. Really, really hurt. So they, they're speaking God's word boldly. They're beaten. They're kind of tortured, right? They're sent away. You know what it says they did? They left the Sanhedrin, which is the Jewish ruling council. These are the people that punished them. They left them rejoicing because they'd been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. In chapter 9, you get to chapter 9, and it talks about how Paul uh, preached God's word boldly, fearlessly. You get to chapter 13, it talks about how some jealous Jews try to contradict what Paul and Barnabas are teaching, and they refute them boldly, courageously. You get to chapter 14, you see Paul and Barnabas speaking God's word boldly, courageously, and so on and so on. What happened? God answered their prayer. They they prayed for boldness, and God answered their prayer. So, So let's recap a little bit. Peter and John, they, they healed somebody with this debilitating physical problem, right? Crippled, his legs didn't work. They heal him. All of a sudden, he's not crippled anymore, which in the ancient world would have been this incredible blessing. His legs go from not working to being strong enough to jump up and down and praise God. They teach people that this was because of Jesus that this happened, that this healing happened, right? The religious leaders don't like it, and so they threaten them, and they tell them, don't talk about Jesus anymore. Stop it. Don't do that anymore. You're making us look bad, right? Peter and John respectfully say, I'm sorry, but the commands of God supersede the commands of men. And then they immediately, so they ended up releasing them, and they immediately go do what? They pray. They pray. What do they pray for? Boldness, courage, confidence, to be able to speak God's word, right? And they pray that God would do amazing things, that he would heal and perform signs and wonders in the name of Jesus to confirm to people the power of God and what they were saying about Jesus was actually true. And then what happens? So they pray these prayers. What happens then? God does it. God does it. It says he fills them with the Holy Spirit. And they go and they speak the word boldly. And if you read on in the book of Acts, which we'll get to in the coming weeks, you see God do absolutely amazing, miraculous things, perform signs and wonders in the name of Jesus through these guys. Whew. I wonder what's going on in your mind as you, as you hear that. Like I, I, when I, I hope you do this too. When I read texts like this, stories like this, I try to put myself in the story. You know, like I, want, I want to get into it. I want to like imagine that I was there. I wonder what you think when you imagine that you were there with them. Like, what would you pray for if you were there? You know? What, what would you pray about? What do I pray for now? Like, when things are unfair to me, when hard things happen in my life, something unjust is done to me, do I even pray about it? 
Do I, do I pray about it first, like they did? Second? Eventually? Guys, I want you to think about that. Tonight, I don't want to like, give a, an extensive and exhaustive sermon on the doctrine of prayer. You know, what is prayer? What does God do with our prayer? I don't want to do that tonight. That's not my goal. We'll do that another time. Tonight, I want to focus on what we can learn from God on this prayer. This very specific prayer that the early church in Acts prayed as they looked to live their life on the mission that Jesus left them and all of us on. And when life gets hard and what they ask God for and how God responds. That's, that's what I want to look at tonight. That's where I want to focus us tonight. So as I look at this, the first thing, I don't know where, where your mind goes, the first thing that I notice when I look at this text is that they prayed first. Like the first thing that they do is they pray. And it's so simple. I mean, it's so simple. But how often when we face hard things in our lives... Do we not do that? Like think about when you face a trial, when you face a difficulty. What do you do first? You know? Pick up the phone, call one of our girlfriends. Girl, you will never believe what this person said to me at work today. Do we go on Facebook and post some sort of cryptic, cagey message that no one really understands, but your friends are going to back you up and tell you how bad people are, and you go, right? Do we, do we just kind of sit and stew on it when somebody wrongs us and think about how terrible that person is and maybe what we could do to get back at that person? What about praying? What about, what about going to God, the great counselor, with what we're feeling? Notice, they got together with Christian friends, right? They get out and it says they go to their people, they go to their church. But we get no indication from the text that they sulked. None. We get no indication that they plotted revenge or even spoke badly of these people that were persecuting them, that were making it difficult for them to live out their faith. They got together, they talked about what happened, and they prayed. First. Foremost. Beyond anything else. And what it did was it showed their total and utter dependence on God. And it's a great model for us in our lives today as well. Pray first. That's the first thing that I notice when I look at this. The second thing that I notice is what they prayed for and what they didn't pray for. And I think I notice it because it's so different than what comes naturally to me. For me, when times get tough, you know, like when I'm, when I'm put in a bad situation, I often pray that God would get me out of that situation. Like, this is hard. This is bad. I don't want to be in bad. I don't want to be in hard. God, would you deliver me, right? But they didn't pray for deliverance. They prayed for endurance, right? They didn't pray for deliverance. They prayed for endurance. That blows my mind. Look back. Look back at how they started their prayer in verse 24. I'll throw a little bit on the screen here. It says, They raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, You made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. And then he quotes this Old Testament psalm, right? He goes on, verse 27, he says, Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in the city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. You know what those verses tell me about their view of God? Like when, I, when I read that, you know what those verses tell me? 
He's huge. They think he is huge. Sovereign Lord is how they start it. Powerful, sovereign, in control, able to do exceedingly, abundantly above all that we ask or think, as it says in Ephesians 3. And yet, I mean, this this blows my mind. Yet, they don't ask God to end the problems that they're having, practicing this newfound faith. God is huge, but they don't ask him to end the problems. Why? Why wouldn't they ask for his help to change the situation, to make it better, to deliver them? Guys, you got to hear this. This is so important. Because just as God decided beforehand, as he predetermined, as he foreordained that Jesus would suffer and die just as he did, it was part of God's plan, they believe that God decided beforehand that the situation that they were in in that moment was no accident either. That it was part of God's plan. They saw God's hand in it. And they were willing to take his hand and walk through it, even though it was uncomfortable, even though it was painful, and even though it was dangerous. They were willing to do that in order, because they believed it was part of God's plan, and they wanted God to accomplish in them what he desired, and they wanted God to accomplish through them what he desired. They were willing to walk through it. They saw it as part of God's plan. Is it hard? Yep. It's part of God's plan. Was Jesus' life hard and painful? Yep. It's part of God's plan. And so they asked for endurance. Help us make it through. Think about the hard things in your life. We we all got them. Maybe, Maybe for some of us, life's really hard right now. Maybe you're in the middle of some really tough, uncomfortable, painful stuff right now. Listen, Could it possibly be God's plan and God's will for you to go through that stuff, to do in you what he wants to do? And could it be his plan and will to have you go through some hard things so that you could do in other people what he has planned? It's a very different perspective, isn't it? It's a very different perspective than what comes naturally to me. How will you respond Like, will you resist that? No, God, I don't want that. Will we get bitter and angry at God? You're making me walk through hard things. I don't like it. We can act childish, can't we? Or will he take his hand and walk with him through those things? God the Father had God the Son, Jesus, suffer on purpose and with purpose. It was part of his plan. I don't think it's such a stretch to conclude that he would also do that for us at times. That he would have us go through hard things. We never have to go through any of that stuff alone. What if instead of praying all the time for deliverance, God, this is too hard, I don't want to deal with this anymore. Instead, maybe we pray for endurance like the early church did. I remember uh, times in my life how much I, like there's times where I wanted to really be accepted by other people, you know. And for me, a lot of times it was in new situations. So like when I went to high school, I went to a different, uh, I went to a parochial school. And when I went to high school, there's a lot of people that I didn't know. I didn't have that many friends going into it. And I remember wanting so much to be accepted, like to not have to sit in the lunchroom with no one else at my table. That would have been terrible, right? I wanted, same thing in college. You know, I go to college, you don't know generally very many people in college. 
I remember going and like wanting so much to develop friendships and be accepted by people. Like we all want to be accepted at some level, right? I mean, it's kind of part of our humanity. It's part of how we're wired, even as adults. And there's nothing wrong with that unless we overvalue acceptance by others and compromise our beliefs and our values. It's really fascinating to me that the early church, as they began to suffer persecution, they didn't ask God for acceptance. Help me to be accepted by people. Help me to be liked by everyone. They didn't ask for that. Instead, they asked for boldness. They didn't pray for acceptance, but for boldness. They prayed for boldness to speak God's word. That word boldness is an interesting word. It can also be translated, I've said this a couple times tonight already, it can also be translated as courage, boldness, courage, confidence. They recognized that God's plan for them was to walk through the hard things, right? The hard, unpopular things with courage and confidence so that the good news about Jesus would be received by other people. How we walk through hard things, how we walk through unpopular things matters, right? I'm sure they were scared. You know, as I I look at it, I'm sure they were scared. And more and more as the apostles and other people began to get in prison and jailed and kicked out of the temple. And so they asked God for boldness and confidence that in spite of whatever persecution they faced, they would courageously walk through it and share the hope of Jesus. They didn't ask him to make things easy or they didn't ask him to make them liked by everybody or accepted by everybody. You know, as I was first started preparing for this tonight, I started, you know, I, I struggled a little bit with this passage. Like, what does it look like for us to apply this to us today? Like, this passage really, it's about persecution for being a Christian, right? And then those being persecuted, asking God for boldness and courage to be able to share about Jesus, even when it might get them in big trouble, right? And here in the United States, like, we're not persecuted that way. Like, we're free, right? We're accepted. I struggled a little bit. Like, how do I, how do I apply that to our context? But, you know, the more I thought about it, it's getting less and less popular to be a Christian. And at times, it's getting more and more dangerous to be a Christian. I have some friends who are pastors at churches in the Seattle, Washington area, which I think is still the least Christian city of any city in our country. Certainly in the, like, top two or three. And they talk a little bit about what it looks like for them to be Christians in that city. And it's crazy. I mean, it's crazy. They said, when people find out that you're a Christian, they're shocked and they assume that you're, like, stupid. Like, you're believing a fairy tale to be true. Right? They they just make that assumption. It's crazy. That's in Seattle. Guys, we're headed that way, too. Right? Like times are changing. You watch the news lately and you see that it's not just about Christianity being unpopular. You see people getting killed. Here, right? You hear about churches being, being shot up in South Carolina. You hear about universities in Oregon. Somebody coming in and apparently targeting Christians. It's different. Like times are changing. It's no longer accepted. Right? It's no longer, yeah, I'm a Christian. I'm an American. I'm a Christian. We're not Syria, but it's getting less and less popular to be a Christian in our country. As it gets more and more challenging and potentially dangerous to be a Christian, let me ask you this. Are you prepared? 
Think about that in your life. What do you desire more? I, I talked about how I, I want to be accepted. What do you desire more, to be accepted or to be bold in telling other people about Jesus, even when it's unpopular? Like, what if we started praying similarly, similarly to the early church in this passage, and we asked God to not just take away the hard stuff, don't just take away the hard stuff, but instead to actually see his plan and live through his plan with boldness and courage and confidence and allow God to do in us whatever he desires and ask him to use us to do in other people what he desires. Like, what if we did that? What if it wasn't about being accepted? And we asked him for boldness to live out our faith and tell people as times are changing here and it becomes less and less popular to be a Christian. We ask him for boldness, just like the early church did, to be able to be witnesses for him. Last thing I want to say about this passage, last thing as I look at it that I notice that just strikes me is that they didn't pray for their situation to be transformed. We've kind of already talked about that. They didn't pray for their situation to be transformed. They prayed that they would be transformed. Not not their situation, not what they're going through, but they prayed that God would change them. A guy that I like to read named Richard Foster writes a lot about spiritual disciplines, but he says this about prayer. I love this. I love I think this is so true. He says, "To pray is to change. Prayer is the central avenue God uses to transform us. If we're unwilling to change, we will abandon prayer as a notable characteristic, noticeable characteristic of our lives." I I really agree with that. For most people, change isn't something that we like. You know, for most people, change is painful. We don't, we don't like things to change. Even when the situation is lousy, we don't like things to change because we know what to expect, right? Even when we're in an unhealthy relationship, even when we're at a terrible job, even when we have terrible living situations, we don't want to change them because at least we know what to expect. Change is hard for people, but this is exactly what God wants to do in us. He wants to change us. He wants to transform us. And prayer is a huge way that he does that. I'd add this. This is maybe tied with prayer. As the most obvious ways that he changes us when we're encountered with God's word. But if we're unwilling to change, if we're unwilling to change, prayer will become negligible to us. Like, eh, unnecessary, optional. I don't really need it, right? This passage that we're looking at shows the early church in, in really tough situations. And I'm sure they were fearful. I'm sure they were worried. And they didn't pray that God would change their situation. They prayed that God would change them. Because remember, they saw God's hand in their situation. That God had planned this from the beginning. And now they needed to walk through it. Transformed. Being bold and courageous. Let me ask you a question. Do you want God to change you? Think about that. Don't answer too quickly. Think about it. Do you, do you really want God to change you? To transform you? It's a serious question. Because many times, if we're willing to be transformed by God, it means us walking through some hard stuff. It really does. I mean, it's just, it's just kind of how it works uncomfortable stuff, painful stuff, maybe sometimes even dangerous stuff. 
Prayer is a huge way that God transforms us if we're willing to be transformed and if we pray. I'm going to invite the band to come on out as I wrap it up. I think it's really cool. If you look at the kind of the very end of that passage that we were looking at, it's really cool how God responded to the church in this passage. Right? They asked him to heal and perform signs and wonders in the name of Jesus and to show others that the gospel was truth. They asked him for boldness, right? That's what they asked. And it says that the place was shaken. Like, again, imagine what that would have been like. It says that the place was shaken and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And it says, then they went out from there and they spoke God's word boldly. And when you read on in the book of Acts, you see how God does unmistakably miraculous things. He answers that prayer that they prayed as well. Guys, I think God wants to answer our prayers similarly. I really do. He's not a genie, you know, I get to live in a little lamp and we just rub it and we ask for whatever we want and he gives it to us. That's not who God is. But when we pray prayers like these, like the early church did, man, I believe he wants to answer these prayers. When we pray first, not at some point, but when we pray first, right? When we recognize that God's in the situation. It's not just a bad situation that's beyond God and I need him to rescue me from. But it's a situation that maybe he planned for us and we ask him for endurance when we pray for boldness and courage to be Jesus' witnesses in this world, no matter how much it's loved, no matter how much we're welcomed or accepted, when we're open to be changed by him and we ask him to transform us, God responds. Like when we pray those prayers, God responds to those prayers and he goes before us and he's with us. So my question's to you. Are you praying? What are you praying about? How are you praying? And why are you praying?